When ancient navigators mapped the world that they discovered as they sailed the seas, they were presented with a problem. Without compass, sextant, or accurate sun-independent clocks, they had few sure ways to help them judge location and distance when land was not in sight. If the moon and stars hid behind clouds at nighttime, so much the worse for them. So the cartographers limited themselves to staying within sight of land. Since their ships more or less hugged the shores, the result was a little curious. On one hand, they had detailed outlines of the lands they described. But on the other hand, they failed to estimate center mass accurately. Distances between continents, sizes of oceans, and even the land itself was often exaggerated by stretching or shrinking or misalignment. Such, it seems to me, is an apt metaphor for the cartographers of the technological world. They often miss center mass. Take, for instance, Nick Bostrom's brilliant delineation of future kinds of artificial superintelligence, oracles, genies, sovereigns, and tools. Bostrom explains their function this way. Oracles will give precise answers or predictions to specific complex questions. Genies will perform bounded tasks. Sovereigns will accomplish more general goals. And artificial intelligence tools, like present Google algorithms, will operate in the background, but with the power of elementary forces. Meanwhile, other AI scenarios, perhaps those of Max Tegmark, foresee what he calls a protector god, a nearly omnipotent and omniscient AI gatekeeper that gives the humans illusory feeling that they still hold the reins of their fates. And then there is the enslaved god, the AI controlled well enough that it never ex escapes its cage or box created by clever programmers. By arguing that AI may develop divine-like powers, Tegmark, more than Bostrom, hits closer to center mass. But they both stick, it seems to me, too close to the shore of possible futures, insofar as they fail to point to an increasingly plausible scenario that is central to human civilization and experience. Now, I've said that I see a plausible future. It's been practically overlooked by some of the greatest futurists of our time. Now, a common procedure at this point would be to tell you what my scenario is, but I'm not going to do so. Because some people may regard this description as unmoored from reality, implausible because too far from the distant shore, drifting through unmarked waters. So therefore, I'm going to approach this scenario through a slow argument. We can begin with considerations of parentage and godly image-making. From time immemorial, the human race has understood that the most universal relation in nature is that between parent and child. Everyone has a biological parent of some sort, and the relation of parent to child entails certain rights and responsibilities. The influence of parentage so captures the mind that one must struggle to evade the common supposition that a child of a king will be kingly and the child of a slave is fit for drudgery. Elites in almost every ancient culture claimed blood lineage from the gods 
in order to justify their entitlement to power and prestige. The pharaohs of Egypt, for instance, borrowed greatness from the falcon-headed Horus. The Spartans called themselves scions of Hercules. And there's even at least one 19th century genealogist who claimed that George Washington was descended from the god Odin. <laughs> According to this view, the creme de la creme are like the gods because of their biology. But the masses without privileged birth or heroic deed, well, they're the dregs. There was at least one way, however, for the lowborn to break through the glass ceiling to the clubhouse of the gods. Somewhat like a name-dropping social climber, the technique involved being transformed into a groveling image of a grotesque god. This, this occurred in the context of a formal ritual that archaeologists have called the animation of a statue, versions of which existed throughout ancient civilizations. In the Egypt of the pharaohs, it was widely believed that the cult statue, like any image, picture, or inscription carved or painted on the temple stones, could, as it were, come to life or be animated with the power of the deity. Priests of the sun god Ra would carry a statue to the rooftop entrance of their temple, where God's intellective power would be invoked upon the image. Often there were mouth-washing and mouth-opening ceremonies in which priests would purportedly transform the statue into a living body or an effective symbol of deity through ritual prayers, through touching the lips of the statue with various implements and consecrated herbs. Now, subsequent to this animation process, priests and people treated the image as if it mediated divine revelation, which would include verdicts, political decisions, moral advice. Plato refers to such a ritual in his Timaeus and the Phaedrus, and later Plotinus does the same in his Aeneids. Interestingly, in 1936, archaeologists in Cairo discovered a large bust of this solar deity, Ra, with this interesting feature. Behind its face, there was a hollow in its neck, and there was a little tube going from this hollow to the statue's ear. Apparently, these hidden priests of Ra would speak into the tube, and they would proclaim the oracles that the simple people were supposed to accept as from the deity. This is just one instance out of dozens docu documented by Adrienne Meyer in her work, Gods and Robots, which recounts how pre-Christian pre technologists created statues of gods and goddesses, often on a massive scale, that would move on their own. Ten-foot statues of Egyptian goddesses would move and seem to pour out milk upon the adoring crowds. The priests would make images of the gods their puppets, so that they could in turn be puppet masters of the people. When a religious initiate took such introduction to heart, the result was a profound transformation. The human became the image of the idol. The, the ancient Egyptian Book of the Dead portrays the initiate as saying, quote, I am Toth, the god of magic and wisdom, the favorite of Ra, the lord of strength. My head is that of Ra, who is united with Atman, the shaper of the world. My tongue is that of Ptah, the god of craftsmen. My throat is that of Hathor, the goddess of love. The result of this image worship 
according to one archaeologist, is that, quote, the worshiper is turned into the God that he adores. Now, to many, the idea of bowing down before a manufactured product sounds absurd. And indeed, the Israel prophets would often mock this sort of activity. As it says in Psalm 115, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak, eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. The psalmist concludes, those who make them are like them, and all who trust in them. Significantly, what the Egyptian Book of the Dead says is the attainment of a height of religion represents for the Hebrew prophets the depth of folly and even a curse. Let them become like those senseless gods, those who trust in them. In other words, their humanity would become diminished to such a point that they gave themselves up to gods who could not save them. Now, if making and worshiping of images of the gods freezes the idolater's soul like Hans Solo and Carbonite, why would anyone do it? Sacred scripture also suggests three chief reasons. Transference, greed, and control. Transference. This is the most understandable reason for idolatry. For example, when men experienced the life-giving power of the Nile or the perennial order of the stars, they confused the creation for the creator and so transferred their loyalty. Again, when God seemed far away on an untouchable mountain, and when Moses tarried with his withdrawn contemplation, the people of Israel induced Aaron to fashion for them an idol made from their treasure. St. Paul says they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images representing mortal man or birds or animals or reptiles. The Book of Wisdom narrates two more substitutionary causes for idolatry. It describes how a father in grief perhaps carved an image of his dead child, set this image up, and then transferred his own emotions and grief to this image. And as time went on, he encouraged his family also to transfer their feelings to this image. After a few generations, this began to be idolatry. And there's another one. In this case, a man could not honor the distant monarch, and so they carve an image of this monarch, they set it up, and they, they give homage to him as a sign of their political allegiance. But here, too, eventually, the honor given to an absent monarch becomes upgraded to worship. Second, greed. Some turn to idolatry on account of the greed of idol makers. Sacred scripture indicates that this process goes in this manner. Once idol technicians notice that people are turning to their products, they accelerate the process and, like drug pushers, induce addictive behaviors. Here the Book of Wisdom says that after people started worshiping monarchs, craftsmen, quote, induced even people who did not know the monarch to intensify their worship. The Acts of the Apostles gives a, a powerful illustration of this when St. Paul and his companions began to convert the people of Ephesus. 
In response, the silversmith Demetrius enters the fray. Seeing that the cross was about to poke a hole in his money bag, he gathers other craftsmen of gods to riot. For hours they were enraged, and scripture reports that they cried out, Great is Artemis of Ephesus, the subject that they would carve. And then finally, finding that the tunes of the gods can make a populace march in the same direction, rulers turned to idolatry as a form of crowd control. So idol worship after it had grown strong with time, scripture says, and was kept by law, by, by large numbers, the monarchs commanded worship. The cleverest rulers realized that false religion is so much more powerful than no religion at all. And so Socrates was killed for his impiety toward the state. And the three young men in the book of Daniel, they were thrown into the fiery furnace because their backs were too stiff to bow to the large effigy erected by Nebuchadnezzar. It's bad for morale when folks don't wave the flag of the state religion. Now, we may seem to be drifting into the choppy waters of historical theology, but we are actually quite close to the center of the issue. We're circling around the theme and we're about to hit the target. And here, the futurist Ray Kurzweil may be of help. And I know that he's been criticized by many philosophers for not having consistent metaphysical themes. But of course, I'd like to notice that metaphysical accuracy, although it may be a ticket to philosophical disco parties, is not always necessary for intuitional insights. Kurzweil argues that once this singularity comes about, one that was well described by Adrian, once this comes about, then irreversibly human life will be transformed. And this transformation in an increase of intelligence, in a greater power over nature and power to shape oneself, this is going to become increasingly godlike. Kurzweil says we'll never reach divinity, but it will become ever more possible, ever more realized through this technology. Now, it seems to me that Kurzweil's intuition is worth discussing, especially in light of Moore's law. But I would argue, actually, that he doesn't go far enough with the logic of his own idea. It seems to me that what Kurzweil does not state, what Nick Bostrom does not recognize, what Max Tegmark only touches on, is something that we can all begin to see in light of human history. And it's this. If humans, through technology, become increasingly intelligent, increasingly powerful, increasingly human-like, as if a god, so much more so will the technology itself. The word robot comes from the Czech word for slave. In 1921, Karol Kopchek used the term robot to mean androids, that is, programmed creatures made from synthetic biological material. It has often been thought that robots would be the slaves or the servants of men. In Kopchek's drama, robots begin as seemingly content slaves, but eventually they foment a rebellion that kills every, every, uh, nearly every human. Large masses of humans. Even in the absence or the temporary abeyance of this humanity 
there's the possibility already underway that seems like a near inevitability. Large masses of humans will increasingly become like machines. They'll be treated as robots. They will act like mindless slaves. And this by free choice. The inventor of virtual reality, Jaron Lanier, laments precisely this tendency, what he calls the apocalypse of self-abdication. He points out that the AI gospel has been pounded into our heads so successfully that people easily attribute intelligence to computers, even in the, in the face of evidence otherwise. People, he says, already de to defer to computers, blaming themselves when a digital gadget or an online service is hard to use. It's my fault. Our natural adaptability starts to adapt itself to the digital environment, and we shape our expectations to fit whatever platform programmers give us. Whether we present ourselves according to a Facebook page or an Instagram post or a YouTube upload, we start to forget of the world outside of these platforms. And we start to forget that the virtual space is so much more limited than real space. And so this leads to what I call a loss of agency. Here's what I mean. As the elements of online entertainment are continually refined to target an individual's <coughs> desires and insecurities and manias, people immersed in the online world will find it increasingly difficult and increasingly undesirable to disconnect. Like drug users come down from a high, normal life will have all the appeal of chewing on aluminum foil in a gray prison. Consequently, humans will be more likely to treat each other like machines, like objects to be manipulated and controlled for their own ego satisfaction. Simultaneously, people will tend to lose a sense of their own dignity as meaningful agents able to improve the world through their own effort. They will themselves become passive objects of manipulation, whether by machines or by the elites who control the machines. Choice will be reduced to selecting trivial things like entertainment and digital clothes for a fictitious avatar online. Mental health disorders will combine with spiritual malaise as individuals wonder whether life is worth living. Now, this mechanization of man is really the zombification of man. We intentionally allow ourselves to become like zombies. These undead creatures that walk about and do things without a consciousness and awareness of the beauty of life and without a consciousness of themselves. And so here, when Lanier says that this is on account of what he calls gadget fetishizing, he touches on a point more profound than perhaps he realizes. Because originally the term fetish was used by sociologists of a religion to describe beliefs of so-called primitive religions that they shared with the old Egyptian religion. Namely that supernatural powers are bound to certain handmade objects. Things such as charmed bracelets or little figurines. So that by carrying these charms around in their person or setting them up in their home, they could increase fertility, strength, health, wealth, happiness, and prosperity. 
In a similar way, it seems to me, people lost in the digital culture increasingly treat machines like oracles, genies, and sovereigns. And they will treat them like idols. Graven images of super-powerful beings that deserve our homage on account of their wisdom or their power. As with idols of old, this will occur for three main reasons. Transference. In Japan, there presently exists a form of robot meant to comfort childless people. It reaches its arms out and vibrates and starts to warm up, representing a human hug. It's so sad. Throughout the world, there already exist love bots that are the objects of sexual fetishes to a disturbingly large number of people. I believe that as robots become more autonomous and better mimic the look, the feel, and the behavior of humans, they will increasingly become the objects of religious fetishes. In other words, people will transfer not only their familiar or their sexual desires onto androids, but their religious hopes and their inclinations as well. Greed. Like Demetrius the silversmith, the puppet masters of Silicon Valley know that idolization is always lucrative for idol manufacturers. They create idols so we will be idle and not have activity, but rather absorb what they want to give us. Profit is directly commensurate with the powers of software designers and hardware engineers to induce mass addiction. And so powerful businessmen will encourage the fetishizing of programs, of gadgets, of online platforms, and eventually of robots themselves. It would be in their financial interest of these modern-day god-carvers to pass legislation guaranteeing rights to such robots, to foment riots against whoever would deny their humanity, because such laws would favor and would increase the intensity of mass idol worship. And this means more money in the bank. Final, finally, control. Many are rightly concerned about the power of AI to help dictators control the flow of free speech and information. And many have experienced how Twitter mobs can irrationally attack anyone who does not fit the predominating narrative of the day. Such tendencies, I believe, will coalesce in androids. Like new Nebuchadnezzar's powerful elites will keep the marionette strings in hand as they represent certain androids as the embodiment of cultural ideals, of the wisdom or the whim of the collective. Making use of the human instinct to follow the mob, these social puppeteers will encourage the masses to give obeisance to these man-made gods. The goal of controlling them through a robotic religion. These androids then will be portrayed as primary agents in the world, whereas common folk will be mechanized slaves. Now, are there ways to avoid these problems? Let's consider each issue in turn. Transference. Given the tendency to wrongly transfer a good relationship to an unworthy object, one must counter the tendency by giving each thing its proper due. Healthy friendships can help a person avoid transferring disordered feelings to robots. 
to avoid transferring familiar relations onto androids, well, it seems obvious, but so often forgot, we must recall that man and woman, equally made in the image of God, are not commanded to transmit human life through techne. They did not manipulate matter to bring forth another human being, as recounted in the book of Genesis. Rather than operating in a technical mode, they were to operate, like all the material world, to be fruitful and to multiply in a natural biological mode, each according to its kind. The division of labor was clear. Adam and Eve cooperate with the divine initiative through an action that is appropriate to their nature. That is, they generate a child by becoming one flesh. Meanwhile, God creates ex nihilo, an immortal soul, and infuses it into the body conceived. When we have friendships, when we have family, it will be much less likely that we transfer disordered feelings onto these creations of man. Secondly, greed. On the side of tech creators, responsible stewardship of their power ought to impel them to minimalize the addictive nature of their products. Or, if that's too much to ask, since the best-made products will also be the most fascinating, they ought to design built-in mechanisms with an easy switch-off. We already know that too much tech use, or tech used wrongly, can lead to depression, addiction, and loss of emotional life. Studies ought to be undertaken to analyze and describe best practices for tech use and tech creators should adopt standards of green tech use at the service of human flourishing. Now on the side of tech users, which is, well, everyone, we need to be less greedy. We need to be less intent on instant gratification and shallow but frequent stimulation, right? We program ourselves to be robots that are fed by the computer. We need to be able to reassert our human dignity and not be greedy for these shallow, often meaningless pleasures. We need to be willing to stretch ourselves to experience the world, to become creators, not just consumers, even at the risk of failure and suffering. We should create cultures that discourage the commodification of the self and of life, and that instead encourage rewards face-to-face interactions, meaningful conversations, empathy. We should not allow our greed to be utilized by the more powerful to feed their greed. And finally, control. Artificial intelligence and advanced robots should always be put at the service of individual agency, not simply the agency of a few elites who try to control and minimize the agency of those from whom they can extract good like gold. This means more open software, honest algorithms about what the real purpose is. This means stronger standards for protecting free speech and the sharing of information. This means encouraging people to truly engage self-governance rather than allowing themselves to be manipulated into voting for the nanny state who rewards their passive behavior with breads and circuses. When it comes to idolatry that threatens to encompass AI-infused robots, the solution is not strict iconoclasm. The term idolatry comes from the Greek 
eidolon and latria, meaning literally the worship owed to God transferred to an image. Therefore, one must remember that to God alone belongs worship, to people, honor, and to things, respect only insofar as they symbolize a greater reality beyond them. It's legitimate, St. Thomas Aquinas argues, to kiss a painted icon of Christ, not to worship the physical object, but to give homage to the God whom the object represents. Idolatry begins when our reverential behavior terminates in the physical object, or when we superstitiously hold that this man-made thing possesses divine or human qualities. It doesn't, it's just material. And so we must recall then that God gives himself to us as a gift in Christ, through the sacraments, through other people. He is not the product of our own design. And so to avoid false worship, to encourage the right ordering of all things, this means that we must seek the right worship of the one true God, for he is the center of the universe and should be the center of our souls. Thank you.